You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. Well, for those of you tuning in for Rick Franzi, you're going to be sadly disappointed. This is Paul Roberts today. Filling in for Rick, trying to uphold the high standard that he sets each and every week on this show. We may little, we may follow his format, or we may flow in a little different path here today. We'll see what happens. But normally, I'm the producer that sits behind the glass, and it's kind of fun for me to come out from behind the screen once in a while and and actually uh, try and fill in for Rick here. Um, for those of you listening for the first time, this is of course Critical Mass for Business, Critical Mass, the radio show. Um, Rick is a well-known thought leader on the subject of CEO peer groups here in Orange County and really across the country. He wrote the first book on the subject, uh, Critical Mass, The Ten Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, uh, which is now in its third edition, I believe, on Amazon and elsewhere. And he also obviously runs and coordinates his own CEO peer groups here in Orange County for businesses from entrepreneur level all the way up to large half a million dollar, or I mean half a million, half a billion dollar corporations here in Orange County. So he's got quite a wide range of clientele that he helps uh, work with. And the whole basic premise is you can learn from the experience of others. So today we're going to see what we can learn from our first guest. His name is Greg Labate, and he's an attorney with Shepard Mullen. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Paul. It's good to be here. What uh, does Greg... Labate do within the firm at Shepherd Mullen. Are you a partner? Are you a associate? Are you of counsel? What 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 role do you fill there? I am a partner here at Shepherd Mullen, and uh, I am the head of the labor practice group here. Okay, and the labor practice group would encompass what? Would that be dealing with major corporations and HR issues, or would that get down into small? mom-and-pop businesses, too, that want to write employee handbooks and other sorts of things. We do it all here. We're a full-service firm, and we have about 90 attorneys. In our labor practice group, we have over 600 wow. attorneys uh, nationwide and internationally. Wow. Uh, from the labor practice group, we do everything from soup to nuts. We will draft handbooks for for clients. We will do investigations. If an employer needs to terminate somebody, we'll come in and advise them. And then if it turns into litigation, we defend employers in state, federal law, and arbitration before governmental agencies. We do the whole thing. Good guys to know in this day and age. I had the misfortune or good fortune of owning a restaurant myself a number of years ago with some partners. We It was kind of a side business, and we built this restaurant. We thought, oh, this would be fun. And it was actually a bar, kind of a sports bar. And, oh, my God, the labor issues that we ran into. We got taken to the labor board because we fired somebody because we thought they were stealing and we couldn't prove it was them you know it might have because there were two people in the till at the same time here it could have been the other person and oh my god the handbooks and the things that we had no idea what we were in for i don't think most businesses do let's talk about that a little bit is california an unfriendly state for employers here well it can be if you don't know the rules i mean that that's the key is to know the law have good lawyers who can advise you and just be aware uh, that the California labor laws are constantly changing. I mean, with Governor Brown involved, we have about 17 new major laws that are coming into effect that will affect employers in 2013, anywhere from employee privacy rights, social media, um, wage statements, independent contractor, employment agreements, commission agreements, um, everything. And that, that happens quite frequently uh, every year. 
something new comes about, and we have to go out there and, and notify our clients and make sure they're doing it right. But, Greg, everybody on both sides of the political aisle agrees that the small business is the backbone of America's recovery here. We all want to get everybody out there building small businesses. How do we suddenly become educated on this myriad of employee laws and regulations out there? Well, you have to be vigilant because the law does frequently change in this area. And we represent only employers, so we feel the pain that people are feeling out Mm -hmm. there. I've had clients who have almost decide to throw in the towel and yeah. move to another state. Um, I try to convince them otherwise and say, look, there's a lot of opportunity here in California, um, but as long as you know the law and, and do your best to follow it, you should be okay. Well, give us some onerous examples. For example, uh, you talked about social media. You know, Do you have to have a social media policy if you see that your employee is bragging about, uh, I don't know, being a member of the American Nazi Party or uh, is... Uh, uh, talking trash about your business, can't you just fire them? It, it's funny that you asked that because I just gave a seminar on this exact topic. <laughs> and laws regarding social media, both in California and nationwide, are not intuitive. You can't sit there and look at those laws and say, this is common sense and we can fire someone for doing this. There's a lot of issues that come up with social media uh, that re- revolve around right to unionize and right to, to, have, to avoid unfair labor practices. Okay. So you, you can't just assume that you can fire someone if they badmouth the company online. Uh, employees do have the rights under the National Labor Relations Act to criticize employers and to try to unionize and to try to develop uh, you know, support for changing uh, conditions in the workplace. So mm-hmm. you cannot just look at something, go ahead and fire someone because you're unhappy with it. There are some protections both from privacy rights and from potential unionizing issues, even for companies that are not unionized. But aren't most people employed under what we learned, to, the, the phrase we learned to hang our hat on was at-will employment? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because at-will employment is one of the most misunderstood concepts. <laughs> okay, let's law. talk about that. Um, <laughs> at-will employment simply means that a person can be terminated with or without cause, with or without notice. Um, and But they can't be, you cannot be terminated for an illegal purpose. Right. So at-will employment, we certainly recommend that all our clients have strong at-will policies, have them in the handbooks, have them in the applications, remind employees about that when you do reviews and things of that nature. When you terminate, you always want to try to use the at-will language. Right. But remember, that only protects you from certain types of claims, breach of contract claims, breach of implied, implied covenant claims, things like that. And clearly there are protected federal categories. You can't fire somebody for sexual orientation Absolutely. or race, creed, religion, those kinds of things. So yeah. it's good to have at-will policies and apply them but it only protects you from certain limited claims, you still, I always advise clients, always have a very good reason to fire someone, even if they're at will. Hmm. Now, I know many people that are uh, work working uh, as managers for big corporations here in uh, California, and they tell me it's almost impossible to fire somebody. You've got to go through so many rules and regulations. Your employee walks in and screams at you and calls you some four-letter word in the old days you'd say that's it buddy pack up and don't let the door hit you on the way out now you've got some some more regulations and rules and stuff is that is that true for big companies as well as little companies or do little companies have more leeway with this at will where you're basically saying you're only working here you know at the will of the employer here well the law applies equally to both big and small companies and i tell employers look as long as you do your homework, as long as you take the right steps, you still can fire someone, even in California. 
Uh, for example, you need good employment policies. You need a good handbook. Uh-huh. Uh, I have clients who come to me and say, I have not changed my handbook since the Eisenhower administration. Yeah, right. That's a problem because the law does change quite frequently. So what I recommend is yearly you have somebody, an experienced labor counsel, take a look at your handbooks. You want to have good employment agreements. Um, I recommend employment agreements for a, a majority of employees, even rank and file at will employees. It's good to have them. Hmm. Um, it's it's also very good to have. Um, even if you've got a little store and you just want to have somebody work in the counter here, you're saying you should actually have something in writing about their employment contract here. Sure, it doesn't have to be a formal agreement, but maybe even an offer letter that's signed. Um, you know, in real estate, what's the most, three most important things? Location, location, location. Right. In employment law, it's documentation, documentation, <laughs> right. documentation. Right. You can never have enough documentation. Well, because when I go to when I go to court to defend clients, and I do this all the time. Right. And you're in front of a jury. You're already ten feet underground if yes. you're an employer in front of a jury, because the jury is filled with mostly disgruntled former employees. So you need to have ten times the evidence that a plaintiff would have if they're bringing a wrongful termination, a sexual harassment, a discrimination case. So, and what we do is we advise clients to truly document. When you have a, an employee problem, you document. You do performance evaluations. And before you fire someone, it's always good to have, you know, final written warning if you can do it. Now, not every case you can have that done. If someone walks up to the boss and punches him in the nose, mm-hmm. you can terminate. Even in California, you, can <laughs> you don't have to go through a, a bump and put you on a warning now. Don't do that again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so for, for majority of things, though, it's not that clear cut. And you need to develop your case. You need to, to lay the groundwork, say what the rules are. If the employee is not meeting expectations, you need to be brutally honest about it and tell them that. And if they still don't perform, uh, you, you can still let them go. But I, I always tell employers, think of yourself, if you were an employee on a jury looking at you, can you convince that juror who's probably does not own their own business and just works an hourly wage right. that they would have fired that person as well? Yeah. If you can do that, you can win those cases and avoid getting sued. Well, and we live in such a litigious society here today. It seems that people see this as another way to cash in. Oops, I got laid off. I'm going to go sue my employer here. And and so they have that piggy bank mentality here that this is either because they feel it's owed to them or they're upset or you shouldn't have done this. And they so freely, regularly sue you on a whole host of, I think they're, they're I'll use another fancy word, spurious, you know, false claims here. But uh, it seems like, but you still have to go through and defend yourself. You can't just say, oh, come on. You do, and, and that's what, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, plaintiff's lawyers out there know that, that it's very expensive to sometimes defend these cases all the way through trial. Right. Uh, many times you can go through trial and win, yet who really won but the lawyers because yeah. the company pays a lot of money and the, the employee doesn't get anything at the end of the day. But, again, if you take steps, pre- preventative measures, to put yourself in a better position, I- I've been very successful in guiding clients through these types of situations. And the employee is fired or they quit, and they, they threaten a lawsuit. And we come back and say, look, here's the, here's the policy that they were given. Mm-hmm. Here's the five performance reviews that showed they were doing poorly. Here's the final written warning, and here's the proof that we had good cause to fire. If you want to sue us, go ahead, but we will countersue you, and we'll win, and you'll get nothing. Right. And most lawyers will back away from that. Right. And I've been very successful. But if you don't do your homework in advance, that's where you're at a disadvantage. And the more evidence you have in your favor that you dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, that you gave them uh, a clear understanding of what their job was and what your policies were, and hopefully 
you didn't just fire them arbitrarily. You did have some cause or reason, and you documented it, and maybe you even gave them a chance to fix it and all those kinds of things. So the more you do that, the the less likely you'll get sued and the more likely you'll prevail. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, I had a client one time who misunderstood the law, and before, without asking me, he came to me and said, well, I, I have at-will policies, so I will randomly go around and fire someone just because they're at-will. And I said, you, you don't want to do that. Yeah, right. You want to talk to a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I, my, my mantra with my clients is spend 10 minutes with me now or 10 months with me later. Yes, that's right. And if you, if you call before you make that fateful decision, you can often avoid a problem. Because the law, like I said before, the law is not always intuitive or, or, or does not make common sense. Sometimes there's special rules you have to jump through, notices you have to give, timetables you must follow. And that is not something that an average business person is going to know unless right. they went to law school and became a labor lawyer. And in fairness, a lot of these uh, rules and regulations to protect employees were put in place because employers did abuse the process. Uh, I, I think of a classic one that, that um, we discovered. I had several partners in this uh, restaurant bar and, of course, people would turn up short in their cash drawer. And my partner, first partner said, well, we got to make them make that up. You know, if you're down 20 bucks, hey, you either put in the $20 or you're fired. And we researched and found it seemed reasonable to, to us. And we found out, no, you can't do that. You can't force the employee to make up for it. And yet people still insist at restaurants and bars and all that kind of stuff that that's in place. That's against the law, as I understand it. It is, and again, you can't go by industry standards or what other people do. I, mean, right. I, I represented mortgage companies for many years, some of the very, the very biggest ones in Orange County. And for the longest time, um, mortgage companies would pay their mortgage brokers. They, they would just simply pay them commission. Mm-hmm. And everybody did it that way. And you, just, you went from company to company. Everyone had the same practice, the same policy. But right. it was illegal. And you needed to pay overtime to these people unless they were exempt employees. Mm-hmm. And they did not fall under these enumerated exemptions because of some 1959 federal court case. And one by one, the lawyers came in and sued. And you're talking about people who were making $250,000 a year in commission. Yeah. Now suddenly they wrote another two hundred fifty in overtime. Wow. So I would go back to these clients and say, look, because it's a commission-based system, you can still ultimately pay them the same amount of money just reduce the commission and pay the overtime rather than paying a higher commission no overtime. Yeah, one's right. legal, one's illegal. Right. It's the same amount of pay at the end of the day. And that was the toughest part to convince them. They didn't understand why if I pay somebody $100,000, what does it matter how I pay it? Yeah, no, well, That's the technicality they need to follow. Now, most of these mortgage companies, if they're still around, they know how to do it right and they're complying with the law. Well, we got to take a quick break to uh, pay the bills here, and we'll be back. And uh, when we come back, I want you to give us some other examples of laws that have recently changed, or maybe you can give us some really awful, scary cases without naming names that uh, illustrate how important it is to pay attention to the changing laws here. I'd be happy to. Okay, well, stick around. We're talking with uh, Greg LeBate from the law firm Shepard Mullen about labor practices here in California. Stick around. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy 
and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitment in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. Okay, we're back with Greg LeBate from Shepherd Mullen talking about legal or talking about uh, labor law here in California. That's a uh, that's like talking about a witch's brew. It seems to many employers here, uh, there, it's it can be deadly. It uh, it's confusing and it's constantly changing here. What uh, give us some examples of recent changes that people may not have heard about or or up to speed on? Anything well, you come to mind? A big one in California that starts on January first, two thousand and thirteen, Assembly uh, Bill thirteen ninety six, which requires employers to have written commission agreements for employees that are paid by commission. There are substantial fines if you don't do that. Now, I know a lot of employers out there have kind of a uh, verbal agreement for commissions. Uh, that, that's a mistake. I, wouldn't, I would advise that just from a legal perspective. But now, starting in January, there are significant penalties for employees, employers who don't have written commission agreements. So I want to point that one out. Wow, I didn't know that. So you, uh, I make a widget. I have an independent sales rep who goes out to various accounts and tries to sell that widget to them. I better spell it out what he's going to get for that sale. Exactly, and that has to be written. And there's a lot of, um, under the law, there's a lot of requirements as to the, the, the term of the contract, the commission rate. Uh, things of that nature, and if you don't have that, there's significant penalties. So I, I would want all all your listeners to be aware of that because there are a lot of employers out there who just have these handshake agreements yeah, with, uh, with right, employees. Right. One of the major uh, areas, though, uh, that I handle is class action litigation. Uh, you can take a claim that may be worth ten dollars for one employee, and if you have several hundred or several thousand employees, uh, if you add penalties, you're talking millions of dollars. It's a bet the company type case. Yeah. And California has been just Rampaged with all these uh, wage and hour class actions. Um, there's a, a there's some hope on the horizon, though. There was a United States Supreme Court case called AT&T Mobility, which I think is going to change the face of, of how these class actions are handled uh, nationally and in California. Uh, what the court did in that case was to say that an arbitration agreement signed by the uh, consumer in that case it was a consumer case mm-hmm. uh, that included a class action waiver, an express statement that 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 person would not agree to participate in a class action was enforceable 
under under the um, arbitration Federal Arbitration Act and other laws. So we're in California now, and California has tried to interpret that law to still protect employees. But we're making a lot of progress in some recent cases. And so I would advise all employers in California to consider whether or not having an arbitration agreement um, that includes a, a class action waiver would be something that your company would need. There are some risks of arbitration. In California, employers must pay the cost of arbitration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this is something to seriously look at if you're concerned about these class action lawsuits. And again, um, you know, you go back four years for a statute of limitations. Uh, it includes almost every employee in the workplace that's a non-exempt hourly employee typically. And even if you have a small amount of damages, uh, with all the penalties, I mean, you're talking a bet the company case. So it's something that every employer should at least consider and talk to experienced labor counsel if it makes sense for your company to have one. Uh, I've gone out and, and um, with some of my bigger clients, my smaller clients, discussed this issue with them, and we've made that decision, and we've, we've prevented some potential million-dollar liability by having this protection. Wow. Do you recommend people um, writing in that clause that I see popping up more and more that both parties agree to settle this through arbitration, whether it's a business selling a consumer something or whether it's a business hiring somebody to do some service or even a lease? I've seen it written into lease agreements now. Yeah, there's definitely, um, overall, I think that given when you add this class action waiver, if it's upheld in California, and then there's some court opinions that that try to differentiate it from the United States Supreme Court decision in AT&T Mobility. But if it's ultimately upheld in California, I believe that having that provision does tip in the scales in the favor of arbitration. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some downsides. We have to be clear about that of arbitration. For example, I had a case one time where an employee wanted a dollar raise, and the employer said no, and the employee said, well, that's discrimination, hmm. and I want to take this to arbitration. And it would have cost the employer twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars to arbitrate the case. They would have probably won the case, mm-hmm. but the employee used that as leverage. So, in a, for small matters, small dollar matters, it may not make sense. But if you're talking about an egregious sexual harassment case or a, a wholesale wage and hour class action where you know hundreds of employees are involved, then it would certainly be something that that would be very helpful to the employer. Uh, it's something you have to look at on a case by case basis depending on where you are. If you're in Orange County, you may have a more favorable jury system than you would if you were in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what type of claims have, have you had as an employer? Do you have minor wage claims that might be more expensive to arbitrate, or do you typically, you know, don't have those types of claims except every now and then a major discrimination claim or sexual harassment claim pops up? These are all things you, we would talk to clients with to determine, but everybody should be out there, both large and small businesses, should be considering that option. Well, here's one that um, we discussed, oh, last year on this show with another attorney. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But um, he really brought to light something that I guess is happening quite largely, and maybe this is what you're referring to when you talk about hourly wage um, class action suits. So many people, I can think of a friend of mine that works at a bank, for example, and uh, they don't take a break. Uh, they're supposed to. They're an hourly employee. But, you know, they're trying to be a good employee. They just keep working. Or maybe the employer says, you know, gee, we don't have time for you to go out and take your cigarette break or your uh, lunch break right now. Please just get this done. Go handle the register. Go do this. And so they don't. And then all of a sudden, the employee gets upset and or gets a hold of the law and realizes that the employer is liable for all those missed breaks. 
and goes back and sues them, and it can turn into big, big bucks over years of time. Is is that something you've seen a lot of? Is that still a, a problem here? Absolutely. That is something that we specialize in defending employers on. Take a look at what the potential risks are. Um, like I said, a class action, you go back four years. So mm-hmm. when the lawsuit's filed, you go back four years, plus you continue on as the litigation progresses. If an employee missed one meal period, you're entitled to a 30-minute break if you work five hours or more in California. Mm-hmm. And if you miss that one break, let's say an employer, as you said, says, hey, you have to work through your lunch day because we're busy, right. and they don't pay them the penalty that is owed, that is a missed meal period. Um, if that employee then leaves the company, they can come back and sue not only for that one hour of missed meal period, but they get what's called waiting time penalties of up to 30 days pay for every day they not, they're not paid their wage. Oh, my goodness. So let's assume an employee makes 20 bucks an hour. Right. And they miss one meal period. They're entitled to that $20 plus $20 an hour times eight hours a day times 30 days in the month. That's $4,800 for that one employee because they missed one <laughs> meal period. Wow. You multiply that by all of your employees over four years, you have a 1,000 employees, that's $4.8 million in penalties alone. Wow. That is why you have to have good policies, which include meal and rest period policies. You have to analyze your workforce to make sure that they're properly classified, whether this person should be a non-exempt hourly employee who mm-hmm. doesn't get overtime or an exempt salaried employee who's not entitled to overtime. Mm-hmm. One small mistake... Um, can be the situation where these massive penalties are the tail that wagged the dog. I've had cases where the actual liability was quite small, a few thousand dollars, but because of the number of employees involved, the penalties were in the millions of dollars, and lawyers will sue for that those those penalties. Oh, sure, because the uh, plaintiff's attorney is probably acting on what a contingency, so they get paid on the amount of the settlement. They typically get between a third and forty percent of the take. Wow. So there's quite an incentive to sue. <laughs> I guess so. And it seems like there's a. I don't want to. I don't want to degrade attorneys here, but there's a. There's a I'll, certain. I'll do it for you if you want. <laughs> okay. There's a certain category of what we used to call ambulance chasers or whatever that go out and and find these cases and 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 prosecute them to make money here. Well, I'm a little jaded because I've been doing this for about 20 years. So yes, I've seen many frivolous cases be filed, and I've seen cases that have absolutely no merit, but the lawyers on the other side say, look, it's going to cost you X number of dollars to fight it, so I'll take half of that. And I I have a lot of clients who will fight that. They'll say, look, we're not going to get taken here. We're not going to roll over because we didn't do anything wrong. Right. And if we settle this one, there'll be 10 others down the road. So we take those to trial and we win them, and then they don't get hit for a while. Yeah. Well, and again, this is out of labor law per se, I think. Uh, I'm not sure this falls under your domain, but again, I had a restaurant, a bar, and one of the things that we had to pay attention to, this was 20 years ago, and it just first started, was Americans with Disability Act. Well, I, I applaud the effort and the idea behind it of, of granting accessibility to everyone, to every facility. But we used to uh, fear, and we're told about by the restaurant associations, there were, I'm sorry to say, disabled people who viewed this either as a way to get even or get rich. And they would go around, and if you didn't... You know, there was an extra inch in that rise or something. that They would just go from restaurant to restaurant and sue them. Yeah, we do see that type of frivolous claim a lot. Um, you know, look, there's there's clearly every now and then you'll see a case that has some merit. Mm-hmm. And if I'm representing a client who's made a mistake, what we do is we come in, we fix the problem, we negotiate a fair settlement, and, and move on and try to try to make it better. But I do see a lot of frivolous cases, um, and it's, it's unfortunate. But again, if you take the precautions, um, you can prevent that type of liability. 
And the problem is, of course, that you charge a million dollars an hour. So we're all afraid to come call you and uh, take that. We're all going to run the risk, right? Well, that is not true because <laughs> Shepard Mullen, my firm, was voted by the Daily Journal, which is the, the paper for lawyers in right. California, right. Um, that we're the best value for fees paid. So really? we, we try our best to, to come in at very reasonable rates. I mean, we're very good. And, you know, having the best does cost money, but we are very reasonable compared to um, most other firms out there. All right. Well, then, how do people reach you if they want to have a conversation about this, if they're ready to come in from the cold and protect themselves here? Well, they can call me directly. My number is 714-424-2823. You can reach me by email at glabate, G-L-A-B-A-T-E, at shepherdmullen.com, or visit us at shepherdmullen.com on the web. All right. Well, I completely concur. We tried to do it ourselves in the beginning, and we got into more problems and more penalties and more pain, and then we finally went back and did it right. I wish we'd known about you back then. Ten minutes with me now or ten months with me later. Yeah, it really does make sense. And, it uh, you know, you can rail against the system and say, I hate it, but what are you going to do? That's the way the game is set up to play here. So if you want to play, you got to follow the rules. Agreed. Okay, well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our second guest, and uh, hopefully we'll learn even more today on Critical Mass for Business. My company made the switch to Commerce National Bank about six months ago. Our relationship officer was there every step of the way to make the transition as seamless as possible. We had an early hiccup with a deposit scanner, but they dropped everything and drove right to our offices to help. We couldn't feel better about our decision to switch. Instead of calling an 800 number and navigating through automated menus, now I call my Commerce National Bank Relationship Officer directly for any questions we have. Just knowing that they're so easily accessible and willing to help really puts me at ease. They offer the same technology as the big banks, but deliver it with superior service and training. They're also rated a full five stars by Bauer Financial. So if your organization is a small or medium-sized business in Orange County, you should make the switch, too. Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they'll handle the rest. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Be a reader. Tutor or mentor. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge now at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. There's something happening out there today. All across America, we're seeing encouraging signs of economic recovery. Businesses are once again thinking about new growth, and new opportunities are emerging. But it raises the question, is your company positioned to take full advantage of the economic recovery and the opportunities it presents? Maybe it's time to ask, how has the recession impacted your business model? Is your business as relevant as it once was? Should you consider entering new markets or expanding into new categories? And what do customers really value about their relationship with you? The golden thread through all these questions and the answer to each and every one of them 
can be found in just one place. Your brand. It's much deeper than your logo and much bigger than your advertising. Your brand is the enabler of your entire business strategy. Rikus Baird is a brand strategy firm that can help. They specialize in business branding. They've helped hundreds of companies from startups to Fortune 500 leverage their brands to drive growth. They can do the same for yours. It's really quite simple. Find out more, just visit brandingbusiness.com. That's www.brandingbusiness.com. And plant the seed for economic growth. Okay, we're back here at Critical Mass, the radio show. As we said, the whole idea of the program is to learn from others. That's what Rick Franzi has uh, professed profoundly in his many years of putting CEO peer groups together. Uh, The idea is that, well, sometimes lessons can be learned the hard way, but uh, often those uh, hard lessons can be the last lesson you learn in your business. So... We're going to talk today to an entrepreneur who I'm sure is filled with lots of uh, ideas and advice for those uh, looking to get started, because she came up with something very different and very creative. We're talking with Faith Smith from Eyes Cream Shades. What the heck is Eyes Cream Shades? Welcome, Faith. (laughs) Hi. Thank you very much. Um, They're quality sunglasses for kids. So most of the kids out there are wearing these toys on their eyes. Yes, toys on their eyes. Isn't that the truth? These little things you buy at uh, Kmart or something for a dollar or something at the checkout. So these are good quality sunglasses. The lenses are shatterproof. The frames don't have any lead in them. They come with a lifetime Mm -hmm. warranty. And we sell primarily through the optical industry to eye care professionals uh, nationwide. Now you just brought up something I never thought of. We've got a lot of people here in South Orange County with lots of little kids. I think uh, I live right next to Ladera, and I think I saw some shocking statistic. It said like 80% of people in Ladera have, have an 8-year-old or younger. So you would naturally Aww. you would naturally <laughs> want to... Not that. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm going tomorrow. Yeah, you should. I'm telling you, Rand- Ladera is filled with young kids. All these new communities, Rancho Santa Margarita and Ladera and all these things. And so, you know, naturally, you want to protect your kids' eyes. We never worried about it when I was little. I'm in my mid-50s. Sunglasses for kids, forget it. And now we're all, you know, getting cataracts at an early age because we played outside and got uh, sun damage to our eyes and stuff here. Uh, my wife just went through and got cataract surgery. And she said, cataracts? I'm like, in my 50s, why should I be doing this? And the doctor said, I bet you never wear sunglasses, did you? And she said, no. no. Yeah. No. Yeah, you got to start it young. So then the next thing is, well, obviously you don't want to spend much money because they're going to lose them or break them or do something else. Are these expensive? Are these are these <laughs> something? We got a $500 uh, you know, iPhone that they're going to lose again here? Well, hopefully kids will, you know, I think that they take care of things, you know, they learn to take care of things. So, you know, parents are spending, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks on blinking sneakers for their feet. And so, <laughs> yes, they do. Um, yeah, the price points, I mean, they're anywhere between 30 and $40, so it's oh, not expensive. Not it's not $500, like a pair of prescription lenses or something here. 
No, and they wear them every day, hopefully, and they don't knock them for a year or two. So, I mean, they get a lot of use, and their eyes are protected, and they look cool in them. They're very fashion-forward, so they're not... We take fashion into consideration, so we blend the fashion with the quality. So hopefully kids like them enough that... Um, I got an email from a mom this morning that said that her son loves the glasses so much he has a special pocket in his backpack so he doesn't lose them. So wow. hopefully they don't lose them. And um, obviously these are non-prescriptions, so the assumption is the kids, these are for kids that don't need glasses yet but just want to protect their eyes. Um, you brought up something else that I had never even thought about, and I guess I should have worried about when my daughter was young. Lead. I never thought about that. Are there lead and all these other plastic, cheap Chinese glasses that I used to buy my daughter when she chews on them and stuff here? A problem yeah, I'm not going to say point blank that they all have lead in them, but I know that... Um, Some of them do, huh? I get all the recalls from the Product Safety Commission, and a lot of sunglasses are getting recalled um, from stores that you wouldn't think they would. So um, it, it, is, it is an issue. And isn't that what kids do when they're 6, 8, 10? They take these things and they put them in their mouth, like they put the pencils in their mouth and everything else. They twirl the glasses and chew on them and do all sorts of other things. It seems mm-hmm. like that would yeah. be a real concern. I never even thought about checking to see if my kids' glasses have lead in them. <laughs> oh, my God. One more thing to think about and worry about here. Just one more thing to worry about. Well, I think that, you know, you got what you pay for. So if you're going to go... Spend a dollar on a pair of sunglasses. I mean, I think even for yourself, mm-hmm. I think I think it translates to adults. When adults will go and they'll buy a pair of glasses at the gas station off the rack. Yeah, you know, some of them might be okay, but a lot of them aren't. So you do get what you pay for. Yeah. Well, that's certainly you something only have to think two about. Eyes. Yeah. You only have two eyes, so you want to protect them. Yeah, really, isn't that the truth? All right, so how do we make these things hip and cool? What uh, what do you do to stay on top of? It doesn't sound. It sounds like you're a little older than six or eight years. So how do you how do you stay tuned in to the uh, to the constant changing taste of this uh, young consumer? Um, well, we like to mimic what the adults are wearing. Usually, kids like to look like their mom or dad. So Good point. We kind of try and look at what's fashion forward and what's trendy and hot in the adult market and then translate that into children Hmm. is there i know that when it comes to appliances and other things there's some sort of forward thinking institutes for example dupont i learned this years ago dupont will actually come out with color codes three four five years in advance so the manufacturers of toasters and appliances and cars can all be on the same page when suddenly yellow is back in fashion or blue is back or something. And so they will actually, you know, somehow project and 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 uh, proclaim that next year is going to be purple and two years from now it's going to be pink and everybody starts making their stuff. Do you guys ever, were you aware of that or do you ever look ahead at trends two years down the road or are you just reacting to what you see come no, out. No, we look at the trends. I know, like, with the Pantones, they come Pantone, out with right. the Pantones are going to be, like, in the next year. I mean, we don't go past two years, though, so mm-hmm. um, we kind of project out into a year, probably at the most. And where do you make this stuff? Is this stuff made overseas? Are you making it locally? No, I wish we could make it locally. I mean, that's 
That's the goal is to have everything made local. You're making it local and no, no lead. This don't. is crazy. I, I, that's the goal. <laughs> no, we make them overseas. The goal is to make them here. It's just, unfortunately, it's so expensive to be manufacturing eyewear in the country. So most companies do go overseas. But no, the goal would be to make it here. But yeah. um, then, the, you know, unfortunately, the glasses would probably cost about hundred bucks. Yeah. Right. So so I'm still confused. Are you currently making it here or are you currently making it overseas? No, we're making it overseas in Taiwan. How do you then make sure that it meets your standards? Because that's the one thing I hear over and over again. You go to Taiwan, you get a great price, you get a, you get a sample, you find somebody who can make this, they send you some samples, you say, good, here's a contract for 1000 or 10000 or a million or whatever you make, and then all of a sudden they come and they're not quite what you expected. And they say, oh, you didn't want them with uh, pockmarks on them? Oh, we didn't tell you. That's an extra 50 cents a piece, you know. <laughs> I've seen that happen. Um, yeah. Well, that happened to us in the beginning. We were constantly sending merchandise back to be remade. So we're in business long enough. We have great factories. We have great relationships. They're all about quality, all about safety. Um, we've gotten to that point, you know, thankfully. But I could see how other companies can struggle with that. Oh, yeah. Or they change the specifications on you, and you say, well, wait a minute, I didn't want this kind of hinge on it. Well, we got a deal on it, so we suddenly put this hinge on. We didn't tell you. You know, you're going to yeah, say... Yeah, scary, yeah. You don't want to be doing business with those kind of factories. How in the world? Did, did you have any prior experience with uh, doing business overseas? Uh, let's walk through the evolution of how you got into this and that, uh, how you found a good supplier overseas. How did you build this? Um, How did you get into this business? Let's start with that question. I got into this business. Um, I was a manufacturer's rep selling other products, a lot of kids' products. Mm -hmm. And I was busting my butt working for five different companies, <laughs> meaning manufacturer's rep, working on commission and traveling all the time and never home. And, right. you know, I love people. And so all my customers, they would have bought toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Well, you know, like, why don't you just come out with your own product? And I thought, well, that would be fun, but what would I come out with? I mean, I'm not a rich girl. I mean, what would I come out with? Right. And um, I was at the age where a lot of my friends were having their first kids. And I saw what they were putting on their eyes, and mm -hmm. I just, I'm kind of common sense. And I said, really, you're going to put that on their eyes? Yeah. You know, what if they trip and fall? It yeah. kind of scared me. And so they said, well, what else are we going to put on their eyes? It's sunny out. And so yeah, right. I thought, we'll go sell a pair of sunglasses. <laughs> <Like> I <laughs> that they were all over the place. And um, yeah, then I, I went to the malls, and um, I went to the drugstores, and I went with a legal, like, a I wrote down what all the sunglasses were being made of mm -hmm. and how much UV the lenses were blocking. Mm -hmm. And I saw that nobody was doing anything that was of any kind of quality. So I thought, huh, maybe I could come out and have like a little niche. You know, I don't need to be like, you know, the cover of Forbes magazine or anything. Right, right. I could have a cool little business and carve out a niche for myself selling sunglasses that are good quality for parents that wanted to and the extra money. So it sounds like the typical entrepreneurial dream. You wanted to be self-employed. You saw something that <laughs> nobody else was doing, and you wanted to have a cool little business here that you could control your own life. I meet people like that every day. I talk to people like that every day. How did you turn it into a reality when most people it just sits there as a dream, an unfulfilled dream? How did you? How did you? I'm a doer. 
make up my mind and I do it because I know when I started everyone thought I was out of my mind to come up with the sunglass company for kids yeah well for example these are made out of some sort of uh, plastic or thermoplastic or something I'm assuming is that a lot of the frames are nylon some of them for the infants and toddlers are rubber Uh, some of the frames are polycarbonate they're good quality frames so whatever it is it's something that you can't just make one of these in your kitchen tonight you can't just you, how did you make that first prototype? How did you find somebody? You've got to design it, and you've got to just figure out then what goes into it and how the hinges work. Well, when and I had first started, I had worked through, like, an agent, so I didn't go direct. I was actually paying, like, a middle person to help me in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And how did you find that person? Just on word of mouth, or how would you? How would somebody... Well, I did a- well, I'm not saying they want to compete with you, but they want to be, get a product, and they can't. Something they, I don't, you don't have to give us the whole secret sauce here, but I'm just saying that you know it, it seems like these things aren't just intuitive. You don't just say, "Oh, I'm going to go make a sunglass." So, yeah, I think it should you draw a little sketch, and you say, "Oh, that would be cool." And I guess I'll make it out of polycarbonate. Why not? I never even knew what polycarbonate was before, but I'll make it out of that. And then let's see. I just need to make a sample. And so I can send it around. Uh, so I look in the phone book under polycarbonate, and there's 500 companies that will make me a sample. It doesn't sound that easy. Well, no. I mean, there's so much information that you can find online, and there's so many sources that you can find online. I mean, I think that in terms of the eyewear business and the optical business has been around for, you know, hundreds of years. Sure. So it's not that it's I'm inventing you know, something that's brand new. I mean, there's there's a plethora of factories that manufacture sunglasses and optical frames. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible to do. But you had to teach it's yourself. It's not like as hard as you think that it is. What, what time frame, from start to finish? You had this idea, and then you actually came out with your first sunglasses. Was it a month, a year, ten years? How, how long did it take for this to for you to educate yourself about different materials and designs and suppliers and patents and legalities and all the other things you had to teach yourself. How long was that process? Well, I'd say it was four to six months. Okay, that's pretty quick. That's pretty quick because I I hear people say I've worked in this for four years, ten years, five years, you know, part-time on the weekends trying to investigate this and do this. So you were really determined. You, You decided to do this and you really launched into it full full tilt here. This became your full-time job, in effect, building this business here. Well, when I started, I was still a manufacturer's rep when I started um, the first few months selling because I didn't want to leave something that was bringing an income for something, you know, that everyone thought wasn't going to succeed. So I didn't just jump into it full-time with, like, no safety net. So I wanted to make sure that the first order that I got, you know, that I had a product that I could sell. And then and after, you know, I got the first order and I saw how fast everything was selling, then I knew that I had a business. Right. And is this just you by yourself? Was this family money and friends? Or how did how did you launch this thing? Just out of your own pocket and part-time while you were being a manufacturer's rep? Yeah, no family, <laughs> no friends money, no nothing. You just, you, you just keep reacting like, yeah, well, doesn't everybody do it this way? No. There are a lot of people that uh, go out and raise tons of money and write long business plans and bring in partners and do all these other things. You're, you kind of just did this thing. It was that easy. 
Oh, no, it wasn't that easy. A couple of months and you're selling sunglasses here. You know, seven days a week. I mean, you're painting a picture to everybody that it's that easy. (laughs) Well, that's what they tell us. And uh, all these politicians say we should all be self-entrepreneurs, self-open our own business. Just go borrow some money and, you know, open up your own little business here. Well, nobody's wanting money to start up an entrepreneur. So uh, the politicians, that's a whole other conversation. So no, I believe that if somebody wants to start a business, I mean, you have to see how passionate you are. You know, a lot of people might think they want to start their own business, but then when they see they have to work, yeah. you know, seven days a week and 12 hours a day, and you know, have the stress of customers, and some people, you know, they can't, you know, they can't stomach it. It's yeah. not a straight line up. It is a roller coaster, so and it's a risk. Um, You're doing something nobody's ever done before. So what did people, where did you make your first sale? What, did you go to small retail stores or did you go to big chains or where where did you start this business? I started going to the people that understood the product, which was the optical community. So I started selling to the you know, neighborhood optical stores and okay. some less specialty stores. Talk, walk me through the because first they time were you... Looking. Walk me through the first time you walked into some op. What do they call them? Op, optician's office. You walked into uh, some optometry center and you said, "I want to talk to Doctor So and So here. I've got this cool glass here. I want to show him here." What was that like? Of people. So I mean, and I loved my product. So I thought everybody should carry it. So the optical community. I mean, you don't really have to sell them that hard on something that's good for kids because mm-hmm. they were looking for something like that forever. And what would they buy? Two time. or 200 or something? A local, I mean, when you made a sale, it sounds like these glasses are $20, $30 a piece or something. Were you selling two pair or were you selling boxes of them? Or? No, they were probably putting in like, you know, I had pre-packs of either a dozen or two dozen. Mm-hmm. So either 12 or 24. And they weren't And you just went from store to store, and then they would start restocking and reselling, and pretty soon you got a business. How many, give us some idea of the size of the company now here. How, what kind of, you don't have to give us all the secret numbers, but is, are you, give me some idea of how many stores or how many units you're selling or something. How big has this thing gotten for you here? What can you tell us? Don't give me the secret numbers, but just, I mean, do you have... Is this just in California? Are you selling them across the country? Or have you gone beyond obstetricians or obstetricians? Uh, um, opti- I can't say that for some reason. Op- optometric centers, and now you're selling them in Kmart. I don't know where. Are you? No, I don't sell. To, I don't. I mean, I, I don't sell the big box stores. So I sell primarily to the optical community, eye care professionals, sunglass specialty stores. I sell to resorts, um, like their gift shops. Mm, I sell to. Yeah, because families now are traveling with their kids, and a lot of hotels now have kids' clubs, so yeah, it's fun to a lot of resorts now. And um, so uh, it seems like you've got all sorts of ways you could sell this thing, then beyond just uh, places where you go get your prescription sunglasses filled. You could, I never thought of, gift stores at resorts. Uh, little Timmy needs his his pail to dig the sand, make sand castles, and we might as well get him a good pair of sunglasses while we're here, too. Well, they put sunscreen on little Tommy. Yeah, right? And they buy him $50 flashing 
<laughs> shoes, as you said, and uh, flip-flops right. and stuff here. Why not? Yeah. A $10 hamburger, right. So are you yeah. just uh, selling the – is it still just you? Uh, you're the president and the CEO and the chief salesman, or has this grown beyond just you? No, I have sales reps and I have distributors now that sell as well. And, um, you know, I have a warehouse. You know, I don't do the shipping anymore. When I started, I did everything. So it's grown. Um, you know, it's not like a publicly traded company. Right. I mean, it's not grown like that, but it's well, grown phenomenal. from just me. That's phenomenal. All self-funded. You didn't have to go get angel investors. You didn't have to go get mom and dad to empty their 401k. You just grew organically as from a one-person business to a multi-person business here. All right. Yeah, well, but I also, too, come from the school of thought, you know, because I talk to a lot of people that want to start businesses, and I come from the school of thought that that's the best way to do it is mm-hmm. to not take other people's money and or take an SBA loan yeah I mean yeah, so I come from a different school of thought most people think that you need to raise all this money and you need to borrow money from friends and family and you need to bring in angel investors and you need to have a hundred million dollars start a business yeah. I come from the very simple nuts and bolts that mm-hmm. slow slow is good and that's what we hear all the time. People are talking. We do. We've done shows on SBA loans or uh, crowdfunding now, or uh, angel investors, or um, the legalities of raising money from friends and family, and writing business plans, and and public offerings, and private offerings, and private placements. We we've done shows on all of those topics here, and it's rare that we hear somebody say, "No, I just had a great idea. Uh, a couple months later, I had a product." and found somebody to produce it way over in Taiwan and started going door-to-door, and the response was great, and suddenly I got warehouse and employees and reps. That's that's a pretty phenomenal story. What time period are we talking about? It didn't happen that fast. Oh, my goodness. You should be on the... A lot of hard work. You should be on Fortune Magazine, Forbes Magazine here. This is great. This is easy. How how many years you listeners to think it's that easy? But (laughs) how many years you've been doing this? I've been doing it ten years now. Ten years. See, look what can happen. So, did you really (laughs) think this was going to change your life when you started off ten years ago, or was this just a hope? Did you really see, look ahead, and say, "Yeah, I can see where this is going"? Um, Honestly, when I started, because I come from this belief in the American dream and the land of opportunity, and that you don't need a whole lot of money to build a business that's what this country was founded on so when I started and I thought I had a good idea and I didn't mind working hard so when I started I think looking back I don't think I really knew how hard it was going to be nobody does because I think that the way that um, you're not to get into politics but I think that the way that uh, the system is is that it's very, very hard to build a business here, no matter how smart you are or oh. how much support you have or how much hard work you're willing to put in. I think that um, I don't know if the country really fosters entrepreneurship and small business. Well, I don't know whether you had a chance to hear the guest before, but he was an attorney with a big 600-lawyer firm, and he was talking about their labor. He was in charge of their labor litigation, and all they do is represent employers for lawsuits, sexual harassment lawsuits, unfair this, uh, um, 
you didn't give me my break, and so I'm suing you now for this. I mean, it's just the the list of regulations from labor, the, the, the list of things you can get sued for, the list of things you have to do to fire somebody, particularly here in California, is mind-boggling. Nobody thinks of this when they start off uh, building a business. You get your, you got a couple employees and a couple reps. And so, for example, did you know, starting January first, he just told me this. In California, you talk about having independent sales reps. You have to have a written, a written, um, um, what would you call it, a commission agreement. You have to have a written commission agreement with them that spells out the terms and what they're going to get and when they're going to get it and all that. Or you can be penalized now. Oh. So you can't just say, okay, hey Joe, you're my rep and you know, shake hands and here, see how long you can sell these or something. So uh, there's those kinds of things constantly happening that make this more than most people can handle. So I pass it on for whatever it's worth. You may want to call your attorney or call him up and make sure you got a proper uh, (laughs) commission agreement in place because starting January 1st, they can, uh, there's penalties if you don't. Anyway. I've always used, but, um, I'm just thinking very more about that. I always like to know what's going on. Well, you should, uh, when this gets put up as a podcast in a week or so here, go back and listen to some of the first part of it, and you may want to contact uh, the guy Greg LeBate at Smith, uh, what was it? What was the name of the firm? Greg LeBate at Shepherd Mullen. They're here in Orange County, uh, at least one of their offices is, and it was fascinating. I mean, I had a restaurant years ago. That was my little fun foray into having my own business, and a bunch of friends and I, we thought this would be fun. It was a, kind of a bar restaurant. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. People stole from us. People, we got we got taken to the labor board when we fired somebody. You know, a, a slip and fall, uh, uh, air quality emissions for our stove. And, I mean, a thousand things we never thought of. We just thought we we're going to rent this little space and set up a bar and restaurant. It'll be fun, and we'll all go hang out there. No, it was a nightmare. So... Believe me, I I know it's not uh, it's not so easy setting up a business anywhere, but particularly in California today, it is much more involved than most people uh, think it will be. Uh, did you write a business plan, or did you just? Yeah, go? I wrote a business plan. Well, I wrote a business plan because I wanted to get things down on paper just to be accountable to myself. Very smart. Very smart. Yeah, we never did that. We just went and rented. We thought we knew what we wanted to do. It was an Irish pub, and we're going to make this thing, and let's go do it. You know. Joe's, Joe's going to run the bar, and Tim's going to run the restaurant, and, you know, how tough can this be? It's like Cheers. It was, <laughs> wasn't very cheerful. Well, I think your first name says it all, Faith. Faith Smith, you had faith in yourself, you had faith in the system, you had faith in your product, and it's paid off. And 10 years later, you now have created a what sounds like a very successful line of children's uh, sunglasses, called Eyes, E-Y-E-S, just like your eyes, Eyes Cream, a little play on words here, Eyes Cream Shades. How do people hear about Eyes Cream Shades or find out where they can buy one of these for their kids? Give us some numbers or contact. Well, we sell online, so anybody that wants to buy them can also buy them online at the website. It's EyesCreamShades.com. E-Y-E-S, just like your eyeball. E-Y-E-S-C-R-E-A-M-S-H-A-D-E-S dot com, all one word. All one word. Uh-huh. 
Eyes Cream Shades. And give us a phone number if they want to call you and say, hey, would, would you talk to somebody if they called you up and said, hey, could you give me a little advice and mentor me? i got an, I got a crazy idea, and I need some help. Yeah, I'd love to. I love helping entrepreneurs. Well, That's give us a phone number a way to, or an email to get in touch Anyone. with you. How do people uh, reach you? My phone is 949-310-5859. Okay. Well, there you have it. Because I'm telling you, you make it sound so easy. It, <laughs> I just, it oh, so I, I came up with an idea, <laughs> and a couple months <laughs> later, I had a prototype, and I'm making them in China. No big deal. Ten years later, I'm a multimillionaire here. I'm telling no, you. I'm not a multi-millionaire here. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're doing well, because you certainly sound well-grounded and well-thought-out to what you did. And I, sh- if nothing else, give yourself a big pat on the back, because one of the statistics we've already always shared on this show is we talk to mostly entrepreneurs, mostly people creating some new business, some new thing from nothing. And I don't know whether you know this, but 90% of small businesses fail within the first year usually for mm-hmm. capitalization reasons or or the complexity of doing business overwhelms them. And of those that do survive, that last 10%, 90% of those don't make it to see their fifth anniversary. So you, you did something very rare. You, you beat the odds by a long shot here. And the fact that you were able to do this without any outside funding is even more amazing. So congratulations. Well, thank you very much. All right. And I think these are the kind of stories we want to tell people about because it can be done. But, you know, there are uh, there are steps to be taken. And I would suggest that if anybody really is listening to this live or later as a podcast, take advantage of Faith's offer. Call her up and uh, learn some of the, the first steps because... I'll tell you that for every for every company like yours, there are a hundred other great ideas that never go anywhere because they just don't know what to do next. They don't know how to turn that yeah, dream into a big learning curve. There is a big learning curve. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, congratulations. I'm going to go look for some ice cream shades tonight. <laughs> okay. Ice cream, you cream. Up to Ladera Ranch tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> you got to go to Ladera. It's like kid country. All the kids up there. Okay. And they've all and every kid there has got a fifty dollar pair of flashing tennis shoes, as you said. So. <laughs> I mean, twenty, thirty dollar sunglasses. That's come on. That's nothing here. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, well, there you have it, folks. It can be done, even in these tough economic times. You know, and it's amazing when you talk to people like that. She just is like, well, yeah, okay, so what did I, I just went and did it. Doesn't everybody? No. Isn't it that easy? No. And I'm sure that if you spent some time with her, more time than we could today, you'd hear some fascinating stories, good and bad, of, of learning lessons she she uh, learned the hard way, I'm sure, dealing, uh, creating something out of a material like polycarbonate, that ain't easy, designing it, uh, figuring out the best way to manufacture it so it won't break and fall apart and do these things, and then finding a reliable supplier in a foreign country. Wow. I, my hat's off. I, I'd love to hear more. I'd love to have her come back and spend the full hour and really go through the whole story because I'm sure it's amazing. Well, what's amazing is I only went three out, three minutes over tonight here. Usually I go way over when I do these shows. I'm always screaming at Rick, come on, stick to the schedule. And then when I do it, I get off and running. So you got a couple minutes extra tonight here. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, this program, 
by all means, uh, check out Rick's website, criticalmassforbusiness.com, all one word, criticalmassforbusiness. There you can not only see past uh, archives of past shows, but you'll also see episodes of his video series where he uh, has short um, five to ten minute interviews with entrepreneurs, usually more manufacturers and stuff that a little more visual. And you can also uh, get his various books through that or Amazon.com. And you can find out more, most importantly, about his peer groups. I can give you my own personal endorsement. I joined one of his peer groups. That's how we originally met. And basically, this radio station was born out of that experience of brainstorming with a bunch of other uh, wannabe entrepreneurs. We met once a month and discussed our various businesses and ideas and helped each other. Uh, through those confusing early days. And here we are, three years later. So, from all of us here at OC Talk Radio, to all of you listening uh, today or later, we thank you for tuning in, and we hope that uh, we've given you some ideas and information to help move your business forward. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Critical Mass, the radio show, right here on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.